Yeah? All right, well, we're going to look today at Hopkins' poem, Hurrahing in Harvest, which, as I said, I think, last week, is quite possibly the most joyful poem in English. Uh, if you had the Oxford book of depressing poems, it would be a very thick volume. The Oxford book of joyful verse would be a pamphlet. But this would probably be in it. So let me read it. Hurrahing in harvest. Summer ends now. Now barbarous in beauty, the stooks rise around. Up above, what wind walks? What lovely behavior of silk sack clouds? Has wilder, willful, wavier, mill drift molded ever and melted across skies? I walk. I lift up. I lift up heart, eyes, down all that glory in the heavens to glean our Savior. And eyes, heart, what looks, what lips yet gave you a rapturous love's greeting of realer, of rounder replies. And the azurous hung hills are his world-wielding shoulder, majestic, as a stallion stalled, very violet sweet. These things, these things were here, and but the beholder wanting, which too, when they once meet, the heart rears wings, bold and bolder, and hurls for him, oh, half hurls earth for him, off under his feet. Well, it's yet again a sonnet, a Petrarchan sonnet, um, in a particular rhythm that Hopkins made his own, called Spring Rhythm. And the title, Hurrahing in Harvest, is an interesting one. The word hurrahing entered English only in the first part of the 19th century. And it was an upper-middle-class, upper-class word, which the working classes um, uh, uh, changed to make it the word we use in America today, which is hooray. So hurrahing is a kind of applause, an, affirm an affirmation of the value of something, an expression of pleasure, an endorsement. And it's an expression, in particular, of joy in this poem. And the harvest is, of course, the harvest that we get towards the end of the summer, much the same there as here. And, of course, it starts in a quite classical fashion. This is very much like certain odes of Horace. Summer ends now. Now, barbarous in beauty, the stooks rise around. The word stook means um, it's, it's the straw which is, is, uh, the, which is gathered up in, um, in a shape like a cone, like that. Uh, it's the hay. But it, it's important that it be conical in this part of England. Or it's actually Wales. Because the stooks not only rise around as Hopkins is walking, on his country walk, but they're also pointing up to heaven. So you look at a stook and your eye is prompted to go up to the skies. And of course they're beautiful, but they're not classical in their beauty. 
not like the beauty of Greece and Rome. They're barbarous in their beauty. They're much more like the Chthonic uh, uh, notions of beauty that you find among the Druids and others like those in England. Uh, the word um, barbarous comes from the Greek and really indicates someone who doesn't know Greek. It's not just a particular language, but it was thought that if you didn't know Greek, uh, you didn't have access to intelligibility. You couldn't understand things. You couldn't understand concepts. And that assumption has largely gone through Western history to us, since most of the concepts we take to illuminate that which is intelligible turn out to be Greek concepts. So, at the end of summer, as he walks along at harvest time in the fields, he sees the stooks, the hay, pointing up into the sky, and they're beautiful, but they're barbarous. They don't have that classical finish to them, of course, because they're messy. And you'll see in that um, run-on line, the enjambed line, the stooks rise around. They seem to move as he moves through the landscape. And of course his eye is lifted up by the stooks. Up above, what wind walks? He lifts his eyes into the sky and he sees the wind moving along at different levels of the sky, pushing the clouds along. So they're like thoroughfares in the sky, roadways in the sky, wind walks, he calls them. What lovely behavior of silk sack clouds. Um, these clouds, silk sack clouds, the notion came from French into English in the uh, 18th century. Uh, sack is the, is the French word for the, for the elaborate gowns that were worn in the French court. So these are ladies of social standing, as it were, walking elegantly through the skies, the clouds. They're, la they're the large clouds moving gracefully through the heavens. And then he says, has wilder, willful, wavier mildrift molded ever and melted across skies. You'll notice that as he looks up, guided by the stooks, he sees the large clouds moving in a stately, dignified, almost royal manner across the skies. And then he looks up even higher and he sees the cumulus clouds, which are of course very tiny. And they look like meal little grains of meal, which have been tossed into the sky. And of course the little clouds are all appear as though they're melting in the high skies. So the stanza, the first stanza ends with a rhetorical question. We'll get another of these in the second stanza. But the most important thing is, I think, that he's walking along Unlike most of us, when we're walking along in the countryside, he lifts up his eyes to take in the grandeur of the sky. All he's seeing, really, are clouds 
but he's seeing them at quite different levels, different sorts of clouds. And then he reflects on what he's doing. I walk. I lift up. I lift up heart, eyes, down all that glory in the heavens. And of course you'll pick up immediately because you hear it every Sunday, if not more often than that. I lift up heart, the sursum corda, part of the Eucharist. So he's walking and he says he lifts up and then, very importantly, if you look at the choice of the placing of the words, he lifts up first his heart and then his eyes. And the point of this, I take it, is that he's not interested simply in a neutral, naked perception of something, as though that might be possible. Rather, it's the affective element which guides his sight. So the affect is there informing and shaping his perceptions. Of course, for us, for quite a long time in English, the seat of affect has been the heart. Uh, if you go back to the 15th century, it was the bowels. If you read Luther, Luther is always talking about the bowels of God, or his own bowels, because that's the seat of affect. But for us, it moved from the bowel. And Jesus talks about being moved in his entrails. When he feels compassion for the sick, he says his entrails move in the Greek, which you don't always find in English translations, mimic, because it would seem somewhat strange to us. So, as he's walking, he lifts up first his heart, in the idea of the sursum corda, so there's already an element of praise being evoked, and that orients his perception of things. Down all that glory in the heavens. Now, in English, as in French, we have a distinction between the heavens, which is the sky, and heaven, which is the, the place of intimacy with God. So here, he looks at the heavens. And what does he do? He wants to glean our Saviour, Christ, from the clouds. So, as soon as we hear the word glean, we all think instinctively of the greatest gleaner known in history, number one in the list of gleaners in world history, who is Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. And Ruth is not just any person in the scriptures because she's a forebear of Jesus. In the genealogies, Ruth is um, one of the forebears of the Saviour. So, just as Ruth was a gleaner and was allowed to go into the fields and earn her living by gleaning, and this eventually led to her marrying Boaz, so Hopkins looks into this beautiful sky with the clouds moving and tries to glean Jesus from that scene. Now, we have, a word, we have an expression for this in theology. This is called natural theology. When you look at something in nature, 
uh, you try to deduce something divine from it. So you look at the beauty of the landscape and you think, instinctively sometimes, it can't be so beautiful simply by accident. There must have been design and intention behind this. And so for Hopkins, who is a, a good Catholic, knows that it was Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who actually did the creating, according to Christian teaching, he created uh, in, from the Father in the Spirit, and indeed, as some of the Church Fathers say, he created from his own flesh. So he looks up in the skies to see Christ as Saviour. But he can only glean Christ there. Namely, he's not getting a full revelation of what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah. That can only happen from Scripture and from church teaching. So he can't get the whole of it, but he certainly can get a sense of what it means. So this is an interesting thing. As he looks up in the sky, he just doesn't see natural beauty. He sees the Creator behind the natural beauty. Then there's something quite fascinating occurs. He says, and eyes, heart. Notice what's happened? First of all, we got heart, then eyes. Now he reverses it. Because the eyes have already been informed and shaped by emotion in order to see Christ in the skies. Now it's the eyes that see and inform the heart. What looks, what lips yet gave you a rapturous love's greeting of realer, of rounder replies? So he looks up in the sky, imaginatively or intellectually sees Christ and has a conversation with him. And we see here in the second and third lines of this stanza one of the most amazing rhymes in English. You have a look at it. Our Saviour that yet gave you are. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary rhyme. It's an extraordinary rhyme in itself, but when you put it in the context of Victorian poetry, it's just mind-blowing. It's really extraordinary. You would never have found Tennyson, for instance, coming up with a rhyme like this, or Meredith. So he looks up, and with his eyes and his heart, he sees, as it were, Christ looking at him and speaking to him. And how does Christ speak to him? Well, he greets him, Christ greets Hopkins in a rapture, with rapturous love. And he greets him not in some whimsy-whamsy way. He replies to the longings of his heart in a real, round manner. They're real answers to his problems, to his questions, to his anxieties and also to his excitement. And they're round, that's to say, they're full. 
So they're very satisfying, real answers that he gets in this colloquy between himself and Christ. And so the second stanza ends, and it's another rhetorical question. Namely, it supplies its own answer. So that's the octave. The um, sestet has got a few interesting elements in it. The first of which is when he calls the hills azurus. This is a word meaning blue, a kind of light blue, that was imported from French into English and really only started to be used in the 19th century. It was used a lot in French poetry of the 19th century, especially by um, Stéphane Mallarmé, the great French poet, who has a line which reads, Les yeux, les yeux, les yeux. He loved that word, <laughs> les yeux. Uh, so this is not a word which is that common in English, particularly not at this time. So it's the light blue hung hills. The hills um, are hung with, uh, with flowers of some kind. Um, but they're blue because they're in the distance. But they look as though they're just suspended in the landscape. And what are these hills in the Welsh countryside? They're Christ's world-wielding shoulder. This is an unusual image in Christian theology, which is common to, almost singular, to, uh, to Hopkins. And it's that Christ is Atlas, the Christian Atlas, who in classical mythology held up the world. And the person who holds up the world for Hopkins is Christ. So as he looks over and sees these undulating hills in the distance, it's as though he sees the top of Christ's shoulder holding up the whole world. So we have Christ who's holding up the world from beneath and also looking down from the skies at him. So he's seeing this huge... Christ, who's occupying all of his visual field. His world-wielding shoulder, majestic. And then a parenthesis. As a stallion stalwart, very violet sweet. He introduces a paradox that Christ is like a stallion. He's a stalwart stallion, reliable, strong. But also, unlike a stallion, is very sweet and delicate. So Christ has contradictory qualities. Yes, he's sweet but also strong. These things, these things, namely the clouds from which he gleans an image of Christ and also the idea of Christ holding up the world, his excitement is marked, I think, by the repetition 
these things, these things, were here. That's to say they've always been here. They're not put on for his show, as a show for Hopkins. He goes out on his walk, and the hills were there. They were always light blue in the, light blue in the distance, and the clouds were always there. All the beauty of the world was apparent. But if you'd just been walking along with your eyes horizontal, you wouldn't see it. If your heart hadn't informed your perception to look for God's presence in the world, then you wouldn't be aware of God's presence in the world. God just doesn't drop um, a sign from the heavens saying, Hi, I'm here. You have to look in a particular way in order to discern the traces of the divine. So these things were here, and but, an odd locution for us these days, and only, and but the beholder wanting. So the only thing which wasn't there beforehand is someone to look up and appreciate the beauty and the divinity behind the beauty. He's not someone who is just seeing. He's someone who is beholding. And there's an enormous difference between perceiving something and beholding something. When we see something, we perceive it, and we perhaps magically turn it into some kind of awareness or knowledge. When we behold something, we're in a position of awe, of wonder, of contemplation. And so, notice when he talks about earlier his eyes, they've been transformed from agents of perception to agents of contemplation. And but the beholder wanting. Wanting is always an interesting word since it implies something that is um, something which is lacked and something that is desired. And the thing which is desired is imagined to supply that which is uh, the, the lack. So the beholder was wanting. There wasn't anyone in the landscape to take in all of this beauty. But the beholder was also desiring needed a kind of completion in the relationship which is embodied in his um, encounter with Christ in the skies. So there we have, as it were, the beauty of the world um, representing Christ and Hopkins raising his eyes to encounter Christ and having this extraordinary, um, extraordinarily rich encounter, and he says, which two, when they once meet, when Hopkins meets Christ, the heart, it comes back again, the seat of affect, rears wings, it starts to grow wings, the heart, bold and bolder, so it's growing these wings very fast, 
in an insistent way that the heart wants to start flying out of the body. This is a kind of what we call ecstasy. The heart wants to leave the body in a, in a state of ecstasis, of rising above the body. Why does the heart want to do this? Because the heart wants to be with Christ. And Christ is in the skies. It's very interesting, this element of the skies. Um, in John Milton's Paradise Lost, the great epic in the early 17th century, when Adam is created by God and he's on the ground and he opens his eyes and the first thing he does is get up and look up in the sky. He doesn't look around him because he knows that his creator has just made him and he wants to look up, up and find his creator. So the longing for the relationship with God is very heavily marked. And if you read in early patristic um, Latin writing, if you read um, Lactantius, for instance, Lactantius has a very peculiar argument for the existence of God, which was much credited in the day. It's not philosophically sophisticated, but he said it's obvious that there is a God because human beings are the only animals that stand upright on two feet, and that we have a neck bone which allows us to look up. This is known as the argument from the neck bone. <laughs> it's not a particularly good argument. However, it's uh, quite charming. So these two, when they once meet, the heart rears wings bold and bolder and hurls for him. Oh, half hurls earth for him off under his feet. The heart rising up towards Christ makes Hopkins jump for joy. He leaps off from the earth and momentarily leaves the earth. The only poem I know of in English which has an image of someone jumping for joy. It just doesn't happen all that often. And certainly the most affirmative, joyful poem about Christianity I can think of in English. There seems to be no dark tones in the poem. And as we know, Hopkins did have dark tones in a number of his poems. You might well remember, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. One of the darkest poems in English. The wanting is the closest thing to darkness. Hmm? The wanting. The wanting. The wanting is the closest right. thing right. to darkness. That's it. Uh, this, but the desire is immediately satisfied. Yeah. yeah. So you have the desire, it's met. Yes. Exactly. So I think that's roughly what's going on. But there may be other things that you've noticed. In the, in the second stanza? Second stanza, first line, and then the... Uh, okay, yeah. He used to mark up the poems um, it, because his rhythms are not those of normal English poetry. Okay. Most in... Well, in old English poetry, from the, from the Saxon time through to um, before the Norman invasion, 
of Britain, it was accentual and alliterative. So if you think of Piers Plowman, for example, there are four heavy stresses with alliteration, like in a summer season when Sufta was the sunner. Boom, 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 boom. And that was how English poetry before the French invasion was written. With the French invasion, the language changes. Saxon and French start to dance together until we get something which becomes English, the language we all speak. And many, many French words come in, and with that, a Latinate dimension to what was essentially a Germanic language. That means that the rhythm of the language changed. And it meant, for, say, from Chaucer on, um, that poetry started to be written primarily in iams. That's to say, a relatively unstressed syllable, and then a relatively stressed syllable. So if you think of your heartbeat, we, our heart beats always in iambic meter. And when you have five of those bumps, you get what's called iambic pentameter. And that became a very standard meter in English. So there, in that meter, you're counting the number of feet which are uh, two, two syllables. It's got ten syllables roughly, and you get five beats. Now those those iams are sometimes reversed. There's extra metrical syllables put in, and there's a great deal of variation. Otherwise, you'd fall asleep after the first couple of lines. Um, when Hopkins comes along in the Victorian period, where everyone pretty much is writing standard iambic pentameter. He says there's something English poetry has lost, and it's the kind of thing which we had back in the Saxon days, and also the children's rhymes have. And it's the idea that you count the stresses, not the unstressed syllables. So he would give examples like ding dong del pussies in the well. Ding, dong, del, it's three stresses in a line. There's no alternation of relatively unstressed and relatively stressed syllables. Um, and the same with a lot of children's rhymes, which are intensely memorable, but they don't have um, a variation of relatively unstressed syllables and relatively stressed syllables. So he introduced a new kind of measure into English poetry called sprung rhythm where he counted only the stressed syllables, not the unstressed. So if you look at the last two lines, this is a long answer to a very simple question, but it's, if you look at the last two lines, the penultimate line has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight syllables. So the, the stresses are crammed together. But look at the final line which has got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 syllables. So there's a disparity of 8 and 15. So the stresses are distributed um, far more sparely in the last line than in the penultimate line. You get a sense of someone rising, as it were, in the sky. With the penultimate line, the tension of about to jump 
and in the final line, the sense of exuberance of having gained that momentary liberty. Now, because this is quite hard to read, we don't know until you study Hopkins closely, which you can do at home, of course, you can always read the lines to yourself and try to scan them. He marked up certain words that he wanted stressed. That's why there are accent lines on eyes and heart in the third line. If you look at Hopkins' manuscripts, there are lots of lines and accent marks and strange signs on the poems. And until we get next year, most likely, the authoritative Clarendon edition of the poems, we won't know quite what the authoritative text of a Hopkins poem looks like. And in the small world of Hopkins studies, there's a lot of anxiety and, uh, and anticipation of whether the editor is going to be heavy on the use of science or light on the use of science. But will, will, the stress, will, will the stress be noted in Is it holding the word longer? No. As in, I lift up heart, eyes, and then the third one. Okay. And eyes, right. heart, it's not, it's not that. All right, well, there's, there's two kinds of stress involved. Um, there's those kinds of stresses which are built into our language, like content and content. So, as I, as I tell my students, we can't dispute this. You just sound like an idiot if in the right context you mispronounce the word. Either, it's, either you, you don't say, I'm not feeling very content today. Well, no one says that. We all recognize that the English language is, um, is accented in the way that German is, and French generally isn't. So that's built into the language. Now, poets, by the way in which the syllables are placed in a line, can alter that so you get an extra emphasis upon something. Um, and that's why he marks that there, because as soon as you depart from accentual syllabic verse, namely the iambic pentameter, for example, then you, um, you need accent marks. What does he intend for it to sound like? Something like, and eyes, heart, what looks, what lips, yet gave you a rapturous loves. Yeah. So more of an emphasis falls upon the words. And I think he's doing this to mark that he's reversed heart and eyes. Now we actually can look. The eye sees better because it's already been structured by affect. That was an unexpected little lecture on prosody. <laughs> History of prosody. Yeah, actually. Just a really quick follow-up question about that issue. So my, for the, the little Oxford uh, Hopkins collection of poems has some has some lines on here that have lots of stresses on them in this particular poem that are not on this version right, right. of the poem. So is that just because different editors decide different things about what they think the average person? I think the text you've got before he was just taken off the internet, and people on the on the internet just
take off those accent marks. Um, in this um, edition, the Oxford edition, the same one you've got, there's a few of them put on. But if you look at the manuscripts of Hopkins, there's many more. Okay, yeah, so this is not going to be something an editor is adding in. No. This is going to be Hopkins. The editor is taking out. Right. The editor made a judgment that they were essential. That's right. Yeah. The, his heart's going up, and he's trying to catch up with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. It reminds yeah. me of a, of a, of a poem. Uh, I can't remember the author's name. The title of the poem is The Blessing. James Wright. Exactly. Yeah. And the end of it... Uh, I, um, I, 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 I feel as though I would break into blossom. Yeah, like right. And the, the joy of the little right. Indian pony. That's right. Quivering. Yeah. And then uh, he felt as though he were going to step out of his body. Right. Something like that and burst into blossom. It's interesting because it's pretty, it comes close to that. It's right. It's very natural, it's as well. Yeah. Did you say that uh, Hopkins has other examples where he talks about Christ as Atlas? Um, yeah, I mean, a good example, I don't know about that. He refers to Jesus as our hero, which is very unusual. And he talks, and long before there was a feast of Christ the King, he talks about Christ being king. So he had this, for his day, extremely unusual idea about Christ. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the notion of a hero is a classical and pagan one. Achilles is a hero. Aeneas is a, is a hero. And, uh, and these chaps, what do you have to be to be a hero? You have to go and um, do great deeds of valor and, and warfare. And you have to be victorious. You can't be a hero and fail miserably. Um, and when the Christian worldview started to come uh, into being, it gave up the notion of heroism. I mean, look at how the church is formed based upon Peter. And Peter, when he's represented in the Gospels, is not a hero. He's a weak man who denies Christ three times in only a few hours. So this is a man who is fallible, like us, and this is why he's so somehow approachable as the leader of the church. And Christ makes a joke about the church being based upon him. Uh, uh, you are Peter, and upon this pebble, I will build my church. He's making a, a joke in the Greek. Um, right. So uh, you don't get in Christianity a notion of a hero. So when Jesus, as, as he's generally received, when he goes to be crucified, that's not the action of a hero. I mean, if you're being crucified, you've lost. Your life's a complete wreck. When he's resurrected, that might be a different story. And Hopkins places a lot of emphasis on the resurrection. But generally, no one 
in the first few centuries thought of Christ as being heroic at all, quite the opposite. And in many ways, that change of representation from the classical to the early Christian introduced a large number of paradoxes, which we still deal with. You know, um, oh, immaculate victim, oh, happy fault of Adam. The whole of our religion is based upon endless number of paradoxes that we just wouldn't have if we'd kept with the Greek and the Roman classical way of thinking. Eastern and Western Christianity. There are so many divergences between well, Eastern and yeah. Western. Yeah. Particular, the, the Christ as hero. Like I think of the image, you know, Christ of the Pantocrator. Pantocrator. Exactly. Yes, you do get um, more emphasis upon that. The, the Feast of Christ the King, I think, was 1920. Right. So, bef and Hopkins was talking about that in the 1880s. Yeah. And, Right. That's probably much later than... It's probably, I imagine it is. Yeah. Because the notion of a hero was not endorsed by the early church yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. What about the doctrine form of the, of the Jews, where he used to say to the warrior hero... Right, yeah, I mean, there are exceptions. Yeah, there's the... Of, of Christ climbing up onto the cross, yeah. Uh, you find that there's also a really bad Italian poem called the Christiad, which has Jesus as a knight um, fighting against the devil, but it's so bad that it never really took off. And there you do find Christ being represented as a hero. There is one poem in the, in the 15th century by a Franciscan friar, which represents Christ as a knight wounded coming back nonetheless victorious from battle. And that's the sole example of it. So there obviously were at the margins people trying to do this, but it, it didn't take off into the center of the faith. I was going to say Anselm. Anselm, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the idea of the knight right. uh, and his uh, lord. Uh, right. Winning his, his integrity. And right. Right. I don't think that was poetry. No. No. Thank you so much. Sure. Absolutely wonderful. Pleasure. Uh,